HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Monday, December 3rd, is our annual gala, Winter in the Garden, and you are invited. Celebrate the season with Heritage Radio Network at the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It's the one night of the year where you can show your support for HRN while sipping on champagne, hanging out with our hosts, and bidding on one-of-a-kind silent auction items. VIP hour goes from 6 to 7, featuring a tour of the Bonsai Room. At 7, all of our guests can sample bites from some of our favorite chefs. Head to heritageradionetwork.org gala for tickets. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Danny Meyer, founder of Shake Shack and the Union Square Hospitality Group Family of Restaurants, as well as the third ever recipient of the Julia Child Award. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Danny about his no-tipping policy, the value of mentors in the restaurant industry, and of course, we'll hear Danny's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, as always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. In her memoir, My Life in France, which she wrote with her great-nephew Alex Prudhomme, Julia talks about the most exciting meal of her life, eating Sole Meunier at Restaurant La Caronne with her husband Paul Child. While that meal has now been immortalized in the movie Julia and Julia, Julia also writes very clearly about the restaurant environment. She said it was neither humble nor luxurious, and she wrote about the joy the waiters took in their jobs and the care they displayed in looking after the diners. She'd never had a restaurant meal or experience like it. While people like to focus on the menu, what Julia ate, it's also very clear from her memoir 
that the totality of the experience is what changed the course of her life in a single lunch. In today's top 10 list cell phone flashing chef worshiping culture, it's all too easy to ignore the critical importance of hospitality in making meals truly memorable. Someone who saw the light at the tender age of 27 is Danny Meyer, one of the most respected restaurateurs in the country for how he runs his business, his contributions to the industry as a whole, and his philanthropy. Danny is the founder of Union Square Hospitality Group in New York City, which owns and operates more than a dozen restaurants. The one that started it all more than 30 years ago, Union Square Cafe, is the same restaurant whose carts led to the creation of the chain of premium burger stands with a conscience, Shake Shack, with more than 180 restaurants in 26 U.S. states and 70 international locations. In addition to serving great food made by talented chefs, Danny's restaurants are well known for their customer service, ambiance, and attention to detail. When Danny was selected by the jury in 2017 to receive the third ever Julia Child Award, one of the artifacts collected by the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History was Danny's journal from 1985. It contains myriad notes which reveal his early thinking on the importance of hospitality, service, training, and good staff communication, all now hallmarks of how Union Square Hospitality Group is run. That's Danny's big secret to success, actually caring about everyone's experience at any of his restaurants and about the people who work there. Now, Danny is not resting on his laurels. He boldly introduced a no-tipping policy at the majority of his restaurants, which has not been without controversy nor pain. So Danny's here with us today to talk about the implications of making groundbreaking changes in the restaurant industry. Welcome to the podcast, Danny. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation, Todd. Well, thank you, because I am too, because I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk to you one-on-one and without other filters about this innovative but often controversial no-tipping policy, because I think it's such a daring and fascinating experience. Experiment, excuse me. So let's start at the beginning. Why did you make this change? We made the change for a, a whole host of reasons that all sort of, um, I, I guess they collided at the exact same time. First of all, I don't recall in my entire career a time when it was uh, harder to to find enough really, really strong hospitality professionals to, to work in restaurants in Manhattan. The city has become very expensive to live in, um, and that uh, cost of living increase has outpaced our industry's ability to pay people uh, a competitive wage against all the other opportunities they have, whether in other cities. Uh, we've also never seen more good food and more good restaurants in more cities. And you no longer really need to, to put Manhattan on your resume if you want to be a food professional the way you used to. So one of the main reasons that we, we made the move was to, to try to create a, another really strong reason to want to work in our company, especially for kitchen professionals um, whose, whose ability to earn money uh, after going to school, let's say culinary school, has just trailed uh, almost every other profession out there. So that was thing number one. Thing number two is I would like it said at some point that, that one of our legacies as a business was to professionalize a business that uh, and professionalize the hospitality aspect of our business, which sadly, I think, you know, for many, many years, because of the tipping culture, 
has has not been taken as seriously as, as it might have been. If you think about all the kinds of businesses that that we take very, very seriously as professional pursuits, most of them do not involve tipping, whether it's an airplane pilot or a, a lawyer or your doctor um, or your investment banker. We, <laughs> we tend to pay people what we, you know, or your teacher even. We tend to pay people... Um, a compensation based on the job they do. And they do that job for the professional satisfaction that it gives them, not in expectation of a further reward down the road. So now we add, so we take a professional labor shortage, we take a lack of professionalism in our industry, and we say um, there's one other big problem. And the, the biggest problem of all of them, if you ask me, is that over the course of my career, which which I began in 1985, believe it or not, the tipped employees are making about 250 to 300% of what they were making back then, which is great for them. But the cooks are making about 25% more than they were making back then, which is untenable. And the growing disparity between what a tipped employee and a non-tipped employee can make because of the laws that prevent tips from being shared with, uh, with anyone who doesn't spend at least 80% of their time at your table, also known as a cook, has, has created a, a situation that I just can't preside over anymore. I cannot say on one hand, we are an employee first business but we're only truly on the side of, of our tipped employees. And uh, so we decided to take things into our own hands and pay everybody uh, a merit-based income way, way above minimum wage. So minimum wage increases don't impact us whatsoever. And, uh, and to take, take out the dynamic that your waiter should should theoretically have to look at her or, or his station and and try to decide who should I really be nice to and who should I really bring the food out for first based on who I think is going to give me the highest tip in two hours. We just take that dynamic off the table and we hire people who say, I'm actually providing hospitality because I love providing hospitality and I'm actually bringing you your food in a timely way because I like doing my job the right way. And I've got to say that, that now three years into this, um, it's still not without its challenges, but I would not be interested in turning back. Well, can we break it down a little bit in terms of the impact? Because obviously the way it's been perceived is kind of different depending on which seat you're sitting in or where you're standing. So what, first of all, has been the impact with, with customers? And then I'd be interested in, in the staff side of things. Well, the, the, the three major stakeholders that you have to think about when you're trying to put this together are your staff itself. If, if, if things get worse for your staff, you probably haven't done anybody any favors. You certainly haven't done your staff any favors. You probably haven't done your guests any favors if your staff is unhappy, and you certainly haven't done the business many favors. So that's thing number one is thinking about the staff. Thing number two is thinking about your guests. 
And thing number three is thinking about your investors. How do you make how do you make money uh, when the math is completely off? Let's let's just name something right here. The American tipping system, and it is a it's primarily an American system, where we are basically asking all of our guests to pay an additional twenty percent after the meal um, for half of our staff. In other words, the prices that we see on the menu don't truly reflect the cost of, of doing business. Everybody has conspired to play that game, but it's actually it's false economics. And and so when you move to eliminate tipping, you have to put all of the the cost into the menu price. Um, and by the way, it's not just the the cost of of the twenty percent that you would have that your that your servers and bartenders and hosts and maitre d's would have made because you're also giving your kitchen staff a raise and what we're also doing to professionalize the industry a lot of people don't know this but whereas there is a a, a really good meritocracy in the kitchen where one can be a good cook and and move up to become an entremetier, and then perhaps a sous chef, and then an executive sous chef, and then a chef uh, over time, there is no career path truly in the dining room. Because once you start making really, really good tips, which generally happens uh, in a pool tip house by longevity, because you get to work Friday and Saturday nights, you are now usually making 25% more than a starting manager's salary. So the waiters are often making more money than uh, the junior managers, and there's no incentive whatsoever to carry your career professionally forward You know, once you've, you've done that. So we wanted to break that down as well and to create a way for, uh, for waiters to become managers over time. So now, now you start to look at the guests and you say, we are shocking people because we're we're charging the true cost of dining in the restaurant because there's no tipping. There's there's no line. We're not playing a game where we say there's no tipping, but we still have a line on the on the check. And so so now the question is, if we pay our staff members enough that we you know the, the kind of living wage that we think they deserve and and that's that that uh, that will attract the best, most talented people. We now have to charge prices that people are not used to seeing, and most people don't know how to do reverse math. So they, you know, whereas <laughs> anybody can look at a thirty-dollar item and say to themselves, "Well, I know in two hours that's actually going to become, you know, thirty or forty dollars by the time I pay tax and a tip." People don't know how to look at. 36 or 40 dollars and say oh that would have been a 30 dollar item on the menu um, so it's you know as as you go this alone as as we primarily have because there's just not that many restaurants that are that are also doing this um, our menu prices if you look us up online may stand out as being on the high side and we have to stick by that so it's it's been a little bit of a challenge, and then if you charge enough to do all of this, um, but not so much that you create sticker shock, did you charge enough so that you can provide a return for your investors as well? 
So it's a it's a tricky piece of math, but I think we're getting there. And you know the the kinds of people who since we've instituted this three years ago, we've opened I think three new restaurants. And when you open a new restaurant with this, uh, we call it hospitality included. Well, 100% of the people who are applying for the jobs know what the system is. And so you're, you're getting a self-selected group of people who say, that's how I want to work. What's harder is, trans, is transferring a pre-existing restaurant to this system because you're, in fact, changing the rules, the economic rules for the people who may have been working for you for five or six or seven or eight years. And... For that group of people, it's a challenge because it's a different system than the one that they signed up for. So it's it's really, really complicated. Um, and again, I, I just wouldn't go back. And my impression is that it's actually been an easier adjustment for customers than staff. And maybe that's partly based on the, the quality and the expectations they already have of your restaurant. Would, would you say that that's been accurate, that actually the customers have adjusted it, or it's been less shocking a, a change for them than maybe for the, the overall staff. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. And, um, you know, in the first instance, the very, you know, we, we were pretty certain that the, the biggest problem would come from our guests and we actually held some town hall meetings and there were, there were a few people who voiced, uh, who voiced some concerns and thankfully, they just have gone away. The biggest concern that we heard was, well, if you eliminate tipping, how can I possibly punish bad service with a bad tip? And it turns out that, number one, most people don't ever do that. Most people tip the same amount, whether they get good, mediocre, or, or poor, or excellent service. Really, you know, people, even people who say, well, I got amazing service, so I'm going to give 25% tip. They really don't do that. They, they still leave 20%. And so what we learned is that tipping was not a good predictor of whether your service was going to be good or bad. And nor did it truly motivate uh, dramatically different performance on, on the part of the staff. Now, I should let you know that without getting too much into the weeds here, that one of the things that our staff did ask us to do and I'm really glad we did it, was to provide what we call revenue share to retain the incentive to sell. It's not an incentive to be nice to you. That that comes with the human being. But at the end of every week, we average out, uh, we, we take all the sales for the week. And whatever day of the week you worked, whether it was a Monday or a, or a Saturday, you will earn a percentage of the revenue for the restaurant. And so there is an incentive for the entire team to to sell, which is great. We want that. And that becomes a bonus on top of the hourly rate uh, that you earn uh, based on based on merit. But guests, you know, to your question, Todd, guests are are actually enjoying it. They they love not having to do math at the end of at the end of the night and let's face it, you've probably had more wine by the time it's time to calculate your tip than you had when you first walked into the restaurant. They love not having to buy their coat back at the end of the night because um, they've already paid for the coat more than enough times. 
<laughs> and they re- they really love just being able to sign and leave. Um, now, I think the next stage in this is when we can have the technology, which you see in just about every ride-sharing service today, where you just get up and go and don't even have to see a check. Yes, I was fascinated by this article in Sweden that people now have uh, implants in their fing- fingers or thumbs where they can uh, swipe and pay for things with their body. Why not? Let's do it. So you have very diplomatically um, described all of this in, in fairly glowing terms, and, and I, I haven't checked lately, but I do remember that, ironically, this seemed to create waves of controversy extending beyond where you actually have restaurants, and that there were at least a couple of lawsuits filed because different organizations, I think one was a... Um, a one was a class action on behalf of diners, and another was was a group or union of servers, right? Who who felt that this was too um, upending or unfair? Is is that correct? Well, yes, that is that is a fact, and it's. I'm I'm not going to talk about it because I'm not allowed to, but it's uh, uh, my my judgment is that it's going nowhere. I mean, I would agree that in reading about them, it seemed. Uh, they both seemed a bit frivolous or hard to produce or, or hard to, you know, actually do anything about that would either stop you from what you're doing or was doing anything other than maybe wasting a lot of money. But I think I brought it up because it speaks to how revolutionary this is. And I think some of it also has to do with the fact that we haven't touched on, and maybe you could refresh people's memory of why do servers get tips in the first place? It, my understanding is it dates way back to um, a structure of the restaurant business, but I don't even know why that structure was put in place. And I'm just referring to that servers got a lower wage legally than other people. Could you maybe take us back to to explain that underlying factor? Yeah, I, I most certainly can. I mean, the, the fact is that tipping was actually um, brought to this country. I, I think some people were doing it in Europe um, as a way to exercise economic power over people who didn't have as much money. and But it wasn't part of the restaurant business per se, but it was brought to this country and instituted, as I understand it, in two different industries in this country just after the abolition of slavery. And one was the Pullman train car industry, whose workers were primarily black, and in the restaurant business, whose workers at that point were primarily black, whose waiters were primarily black. And the, the essence of, of the origin was that the government was successfully petitioned by two different organizations, um, one being the National Restaurant Association, um, which is our NRA, which apparently is one of the largest trade organizations, excuse me, one of the uh, oldest trade organizations in America. And the, the National Restaurant Association successfully petitioned the government that it was not slavery to pay waiters and bartenders no money because there would be tips involved. And so it took, and it took as a, uh, cultural norm in this country. Now, I I will tell you that in 
well over 35 states in America, the adjusted minimum wage for waiters has gone up from zero, which is which is what it was after slavery, to $2.13. And in the balance of the states, it has now gone up um, significantly, although in most of those states, it's still dramatically lower than the, the prevailing minimum wage. Now, in New York, um, as well as several states on the West Coast, uh, including California and Oregon and Washington State, um, the there is no more adjusted minimum wage. New York will will reach parity uh, in the next uh, year or two. And when that happens, what it means is that um, that waiters do not need to get tips. They can get them. That's absolutely fine with me, but it's just going to mean that, that what you as a consumer pay, the menu prices uh, for any restaurant go up dramatically as minimum wage uh, starts to, as there's one minimum wage, the same minimum wage for everybody in the restaurant, not a different minimum wage for tipped employees. So restaurant menu prices go up, and then what that means is that the average consumer pays 20% of a higher menu price. And when that happens, um, those restaurants that have eliminated tipping in the first place, I think will actually be at a competitive advantage. We're not there yet, but I think that's going to be the case. But it's a long answer to your question, but that's how far we are coming uh, with this. Well, no, I think that's a critical background to give because I feel like in most of the things that I followed on your decision and this stuff, that the history behind why, particularly in this case, servers receive tips, it kind of falls out. And if you haven't actually worked as a server, um, I've actually worked as a server at a, a club that didn't tip. Um, and so had that experience very early on, and I was paid regular minimum wage, not not a server minimum wage, which was still quite low. Um, but it still worked. So I've had that experience myself. So do you think that this change that's coming where, you know, and I think obviously New York and California is more expensive states to live and work, um, but often leave the country and change, um, Will that be a watershed moment? Has anybody else in, in New York also, I feel like you're still a lone standout in this no tipping policy. Do you see that changing? Have you had, I know you convened people to try to get more people to do it and there was not a lot of um, sign up, but has has that already started changing or you're kind of hoping it will change once well, actually, this? Actually, we, we didn't convene anyone to try to get anyone else to do it because we, at that point we couldn't even convince our own restaurants to do it. Well, what we did do was to, um, there were a lot of restaurants in New York who saw the writing on the wall with the um, the really tough labor market, uh, as well as the uh, the phased-in increasing of the minimum wage, and, and people got together and, and you know, as, as restaurant associations do, and tried to understand best practices. So... There was absolutely no interest or or ability to convince anyone to do anything. As a matter of fact, as of this minute, three years after we first instituted this at the Modern, which was our first restaurant, we still haven't completed our own restaurants because they have not all figured out how to do it. So 
just to to answer that, uh, which is an important point. But you know, it's I don't really I don't know if this is going to be the way of the future for restaurants. I think that tipping has certainly served uh, a purpose for a lot of people. It, it's there, you know what? There's a lot of people, Todd, who who are who go into the restaurant business without wanting to be professionals. They're very, very happy to say, I love, I love getting tips and I love having a job where, you know, I can depend upon making a a fair amount of money for a week and still be able to pursue my acting career or still be able to study for school or still be able to, um, you know, learn how to be a midwife or whatever it happens to be. And, they may not subscribe. They may not care about our interest in professionalizing an industry, but I do. I care about that because I think that hospitality is such a valid career choice. And, you know, one thing that has just troubled me since the very, very beginning of my career has been the notion that the culinary part of our business has evolved much more quickly than the hospitality part of our business. And I think, I think that's selling ourselves short. And by the way, I think Julia Child would feel the same way. <laughs> we'll get to that later in, in the show, but I think, I think we're talking about living history as it's being made. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Danny about receiving the Julia Child Award last year. We'll be right back. For the holidays, Julia included a classic gingerbread recipe in her cookbook, The Way to Cook. Gingerbread is ideal for making lovely holiday cookies. Not only is it delicious and not overly sweet, but it's great fun for kids to decorate gingerbread. The kids decorating a gingerbread house under grandma's watchful eye, certainly a tradition in our family. You only need to monitor that as much icing and gumdrops go on the house as in their mouths. Julia's recipe calls for a one-to-one mixture of all-purpose flour and rye flour. The rye flour helps give the gingerbread its unique flavor, in addition to the ground ginger, and rough texture. But if you want smoother and sturdier gingerbread, you can make it with only all-purpose flour. Julia specifies to cure the dough for a full 24 hours before cutting shapes and baking. This helps the gluten to build, especially if you're using rye flour, which has very little. She even provides an accompanying recipe for the royal icing. Where to find good quality rye flour? Yep, Bob's Red Mill has it. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code JuliasKitchenPod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on rye flour, perfect for making authentic tasting gingerbread for the holidays. Welcome back. We've been talking to Shake Shack founder Danny Meyer about his no tipping policy at his Union Square Hospitality Group restaurants. And now we're going to talk to him about what it was like to receive the Julia Child Award last year. So, Danny, tell us about that. What was it like? Well, one of the greatest moments of my entire career, right up there with the first time Julia Child dined at Union Square Cafe. And right up right up there with the time that I got to have lunch with Julia Child at Union Square Cafe. And right up there with the time I got to be on Good Morning America with Julia Child in my apartment in New York City. 
look, the, there's 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 just not that much royalty uh, in our industry, um, and in my lifetime, there's 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 nobody that has probably meant as much to more of us than Julia did. Uh, now, it's my certainly my age group I'm speaking about, but. I, you know, I grew up, the very first TV shows that involved cooking were Julia Child in my life. That was long before there was the Food Network. And we, you know, we got all of her cookbooks at home and we learned how to make a lot of the recipes that she was doing on TV. And, and um, when Julia Child came to your restaurant in the 1980s, the 1990s, everybody saw that and it was like it was almost like being made by a don you know <laughs> she when when people saw julia child was eating in your restaurant obviously the restaurant was good and you had arrived and i just you know it there just was nothing better i i did tell a story i believe uh, that I learned an important lesson about hospitality. One of the times Julia ate in the restaurant was, was her birthday. I really can't even tell you what year this was, but it was probably in the late 80s or maybe the early 90s. And, man, we we put together two tables, which we never did because I think she wanted to be a party of 12. And uh, all I know is that we were all over those two tables. We just wanted to make sure they had the best time, and, and they did. And then the next morning, I got a hand-delivered letter with the unmistakable New York Times logo in the upper left-hand corner of the envelope with a stamp that said, by hand, addressed to me. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, this is great. We're going to get a review. <laughs> and I opened the letter, and it was the most scathing complaint letter I think I've ever received. It was from the managing uh, editor of the New York Times at that time. And he said, I was in the restaurant last night. Um, at the next table was Julia Child, who was uh, apparently having a remarkable time while we suffered the worst service we've ever seen. We were completely ignored all night. And you have a lot to learn. And boy, was he right, because the lesson I learned that night was, I don't care whether you've got the Pope, which is probably right up there with Julia, uh, eating in your restaurant, you've got to be aware that, that all of the other tables are aware of that person, and they are all wondering how much better that person is enjoying their night than they are. And so what I've learned is, when there is a celebrity of any type, whether it's from the culinary world or the entertainment world or the political world, we greet every other adjacent table first, even before the celebrity. The celebrity is used to getting the treatment. They're not wondering, you know, who's ignoring them, but everybody else will. And I learned that lesson that night. And, you know, ironically, I've got to thank Julia for giving me the lesson. I was pretty young, and the good news is she had a good time that night. <laughs> yeah, no, it was very lucky for you that that that, that fuss was made. It, it it served you very well for many years after. Yep, it was great. So, 
An- another person who spoke at that gala, Will Guidera, who worked for you at 11 Madison Park, which he now runs, and was a guest uh, on our podcast in episode 17, talking kind of about similar themes. He gave this very moving speech during the award presentation, um, partly because he's a great speaker, but it was also about how much he valued um, you as a mentor and and as a person. And so I was just cu- curious for you, is mentoring something you consciously think about doing, or do you just kind of feel like it's a a, a, a mode of functioning that comes naturally to you? I think it's our responsibility, and I, I think, you know, I, I really uh, reject management as a as a name for what we should be doing. I think management is kind of like babysitting. It's it's a way to assure that people comply with the rules. But I, I do think that leadership and coaching and teaching and mentoring are the reason that the good restaurants get the good employees. And the reason that good restaurants get to be good restaurants is because they have good employees. Um, and I think that's what people want. I, you know, we're all pretty much the same economically. You know, you, you could look at 15 art galleries and they probably pay their artists and their, their artists probably command 15 different levels of, of, income for their art. But in restaurants, the, the economy between restaurant A through Z is not dramatically different. Um, and so the biggest way that we can distinguish ourselves as employers is to be coaches and mentors and teachers. And we owe that. Uh, we owe that to our teams. I'm often amazed at when I'll run into somebody who may have worked for us 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And they'll remind me of something I said to them um, where I wasn't even aware that I was teaching or coaching, but that stuck with them in a big way in their lives and in their careers. And that's one of the most rewarding parts of, of being in the business. Yeah, I think to share with people who weren't there, I think Will mentioned early on, he was like voluntarily touching up some paint. And you just said, oh, thanks for doing that. And that you don't remember that moment, but it, or maybe you do, but it, it really stuck with Will as being recognized for doing something that came naturally for him, but wasn't what everybody would do. Yes. So do you, do you think that it's very hard to succeed in the restaurant business if you haven't been mentored? Is it, is it a critical component of people's success, or is that just down to hard work? Hmm. That's, such a, that's such a good point. I, I, think, I think it's – I don't know that there's any one magical answer. I think it's – this is a business that you should do if, if you love – the topic, which is what you put on the plate and what you put in the glass, and if you love even even more than than good food and good drink, you love making other people happy and being the best part of somebody's day. And I'm going to bring this back to, and that's tough. It's 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 you've got to solve a lot of problems because you're dealing with human beings and you're dealing with a topic that is highly emotional for most human beings. What you eat and what you drink often taps back all the way to, you know, the love you either did or didn't get at home. And the, the smallest slight in a restaurant, you know, waiting 
10 minutes too long for, for your pasta, believe it or not, for some people can feel like you did something pretty bad to them um, that goes way beyond the 10-minute wait for the pasta and taps into something long ago in their lives. I, I think that a big part of Julia Child's genius, besides, you know, obviously knowing more about especially French cooking before any of us did in this country, was that she she taught and she she loved she loved how it made people feel. She loved how she made people feel. Uh, she would not acknowledge that probably because she was as proud as she was. She was also she wasn't. I don't. I think she was pretty humble somehow. But that glimmer in her eye gave away the fact that she loved how her work was making other people feel. And I think as long as you keep that in the, as long as you just never ever forget that that's why we're in business. I, I think it tends to work out pretty well. You know, I'll never forget many years ago hearing a. So, a restaurant colleague was telling me that his his staff said something like, do you realize how much easier it would be around here if we didn't have all these guests? And the obvious answer is, yeah, it'd be real easy. Um, it'd be like a neutron bomb went off in your restaurant. You, you, got, you actually just have to hire people who are primarily motivated by a desire to make other people feel better. And that's if that's not what motivates you, this business is going to eat you alive. All right. Well, we've already heard a lot of Julia moments from Danny. So I'm curious what he's going to say to sum it up if he's got any stories left. But uh, we'll challenge him a moment. After the break, Danny's going to re- share his Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Danny, do you have any Julia moments left? You have already given us several. The Julia moment that uh, I'll... <laughs> I, 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 I've got to tell this story. She had... Uh, come to our apartment. Um, Sarah Moulton was her um, food coordinator for Good Morning America. And my wife, Audrey, worked with Sarah at Gourmet Magazine at the time. And Sarah called one day and said, hey, would you like to, would you like to do a, a kitchen tour in your apartment with Julia Child for Good Morning America? And my answer was, yeah, well, who the heck wouldn't? And <laughs> So Julia came to our apartment. Um, it was a loft apartment, and you know the kitchen wasn't that exciting. It really wasn't. And um, 
they had the cameras and we had a really good time touring the kitchen and she was she expressed a good deal of interest in every decision we had made and then we sat down face to face to do an interview where she wanted to talk about Union Square Cafe which was my only restaurant at the time and um for some reason Good Morning America had only brought one camera and so they had to actually film parts of the conversation twice so during the time when she was asking her questions the camera would focus on her and then they would have to stop and move the camera around to the back of her so that I could answer the question and all I know is that during one of the camera maneuvers, when the camera was moved behind Julia, sitting right across from me, her head drops into her lap, and she just fell asleep. But I didn't see her breathing. And I was absolutely convinced, probably for a good two minutes, which felt like about... 20 hours that perhaps Julia Child had passed away in my apartment and I was actually going through the entire story about how this would be told <laughs> and as soon as the camera said action she just popped right back to being <laughs> <laughs> power, power napping at its best well, she, I, for all I know, that's something she did all the time, but no one had told me about that. She was completely out. And uh, the nap worked because we then walked from my apartment once the shoot was wrapped. And we walked from my apartment on 12th Street up to Union Square Cafe on 16th Street, so four blocks away. And she was getting cat calls from taxi cabs. Everybody, I felt like a celebrity just being seen with her. And we sat down to have... Uh, lunch, the two of us at Union Square Cafe, which was just about as great of a professional thrill as I'll probably ever have. And uh, she polished off two short ribs with a big bowl of, of mashed celery root. And as if that wasn't enough, um, forget about the the bread and butter, but two bottles of Beaujolais, and I don't think I probably had more than a glass of it. And she was as sober as she could be. There, she didn't change She didn't change her cadence. Her, um, it, anyway, it was a great day, and it was a great day for gastronomy, and it was a great day for Union Square Cafe. Well, and I thought, I think a story that no one else could, could tell or have. That's very, very memorable and uh, unique. So thank you so much for joining us, Danny. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you, Todd. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Now, tell us what you think about restaurant tipping. Is it here to stay or is it an outdated practice? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact joyachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at joyachild on Facebook at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. If you're inspired to follow Danny on social media, if you haven't already, he's at Danny H. Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, on Facebook, and at D.H. Meyer on Twitter and Instagram. To learn more about Union Square Hospitality Group and its family of restaurants, 
Go to ushgnyc.com. To find the Shake Shack nearest you, go to shakeshack.com and click on Locations. And for even more wisdom from Danny about hospitality, read his book, Setting the Table, The Transforming Power of Hospitality in Business, published by Harper. You can even find Will Guidera's moving speech about Danny's mentorship on the Foundation's Facebook page under videos. Help support Inside Julia's Kitchen and Heritage Radio Network this holiday season. Have a blast at the same time. The second annual Winter in the Garden Gala is coming up soon, Monday, December 3rd. This taste-around party features food and drink from top chefs and beverage pros from New York City and beyond, plus great music and super festive vibes in a gorgeous setting at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. You can get more information and tickets at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash gala. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It'll help new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitchers, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. So